Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Alexis Gallagher. Alexis is the CTO of Topology Eyewear, and you may know him from his explorations of the lesser-known subtleties of Swift. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Hey, Garrick. Great to be here. Yeah, it is great. How's it going? What are you up to? It's good. It's good. I'm just uh, sitting in my home here after a long day, looking forward to having a bit of a chat with you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm in Los Angeles. It's nighttime. I normally uh, do these recordings uh, on, on the weekends, well-rested, mornings, have my coffee, and it's interesting to be doing this uh, at night. Well, and, I have uh, to confess something. I actually had a little nap before our talk because I was so tired from the day. So I've got, I'm a little ahead of you already. Perfect. Yeah, I had my dinner. So the dinner is actually even slowing me down even more. But you know what? I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm just going to go. I'm going to go so like I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it on this episode. I can feel it. All right. Good. <laughs> so that's cool. You live in San Francisco. You're the CTO of Topology um, Eyewear. Can you explain a little bit about what is topology? What are you guys up to? And then, like, what's your role um, at, at the company? Yeah, well, I'm uh, responsible for hiring and management of all software, which uh, adds up to a lot at uh, uh, this company since it really depends on software. What we do is we make completely 100% custom eyewear, and it's all done through the iPhone. So with the iPhone, you can take a video selfie of yourself. Then we have computer vision code that runs in the cloud and it builds a three-dimensional model of your face, a very detailed one. Wow. And then based on that, you're able to do a virtual try-on on your iPhone where you can see how different kinds of glasses would look on you. Different colors, different styles, uh, sunglasses versus prescription glasses. And then when you find ones that you like, you can order them. And then we custom manufacture the glasses exactly based on the shape of your face. So when you're browsing through the try-on, you're not browsing through sort of uh, frames that have already been built and are waiting for you in a factory somewhere. You're actually specifying very detailed parameters, dozens of parameters that are all then used to custom manufacture a pair for you. So the thing I like about it is um, it's just a lot of cool technology that's necessary to make it happen, to custom manufacture, the augmented reality try-on, the computer vision, and it because you know you're making something that people are going to put on their face you really need to do a good job you need to have a beautiful app you need to you need to have a nice physical product i'm really happy with it that's what that's what i've been doing now for a while it sounds like augmented reality meets fashion it is yeah it is funny actually cuz the last year we were at um a san francisco fashion week or silicon valley fashion week and uh there was an event which was a meetup and I was ta- and I sort of went to this event and we were talking to people there to get a sense of how people were reacting to the product and someone said you work in fashion and I <laughs> thought for a second I said I do work in fashion yes <laughs> like it just occurred to me as I was answering like how cool is that I work in fashion which I, I never thought of it being that way before but yeah it's a fashion tech startup but it also is, is eyewear so we try to make nice eyewear but it's also just if you want a nice pair of glasses that's, uh, that's what we're aiming for. But, uh, and the computer vision, like that augmented reality stuff, is very interesting. It seems like a hot topic right now, especially with kind of the augmented reality that, for instance, like Snap is doing or Snapchat is doing with like their, you know, it's, it's silly stuff, but it's real 
that's really interesting technology, like being able to put these, I don't know, what's it called? Like the rainbow, like puke or like the butterflies on someone's face. Um, like that's real. Te- oh, yeah. Crazy technology, being able to recognize a face and then augment it. And so in, you're playing in the same space, but it's in a more sort of serious way, right? Because it's like fashion, you're making a product, you're selling the product. Well, one um, of the differences is I'd say that if you are putting a filter on someone's face as part of a um, sort of amusing effect, people expect a certain level of quality. But if you're trying to sell a physical object that someone's going to wear on their face, which is what eyeglasses are, uh, then the standard of quality that you need to hit is much higher. Right. Because people can't reach out and touch the product in their phone. The best you can do is the quality of your graphics rendering. So for us, it's really important. And this is one of the things I find really cool about uh, our product, which is that it requires this extremely high standard of, of rendering. So that gives you, you know, license to do the development for that. There's a real business imperative to make it extremely polished. And, and that's, a, that's a real luxury because sometimes you're in an environment where the business imperative is to make it kind of good enough. Uh, and then you never really have the permission to go you know, 100% of the way in doing as good a job as you can. But we really have to because how else do you convey what you're about to sell if you, if you can't represent it accurately? Long term, I can see uh, this type of technology being applied to, you know, not just eyewear, but uh, clothing and different types of products oh, yeah. you know, beyond eyewear. And uh, as, as a company like Apple moves into more and more fashion, I could see them really, really wanting this type of technology. But uh, I digress. I want to get to uh, your role as CTO. What does that look like exactly? So I've been thinking about what it is lately, like how the business works. There's a lot of software involved. There's software uh, involved in driving our manufacturing process which ends in these hard-edged, you know, devices, the uh, the eyewear. It's a physical object. And then way at the other end, we have these soft, mushy things, like, you know, human faces. And we have uh, computer vision and machine learning models that are involved in understanding the face and, and uh, extracting the parameters we need to model things. And then iOS is right in the middle. iOS is sort of this chain that connects the sort of mushy, soft world of human faces ultimately to the hard and needs to be right world of automated manufacture. And so my job right now is really polishing the thing that's going to go in the middle there. So we have all the core technology done, but we're still at the stage where we're polishing and perfecting the app that's used to present all this. And therefore, I need to sort of understand how the whole stack fits together, put the pieces together, and um, be sure that we're going to end up in a position where the app is the highest possible standard of quality and it's going to be a really polished app. So I'm sort you, of integrating it all right now. And Are you working on the iOS app right now? Have you started it? Yeah, yeah. we, we have an app right now and we have the augmented uh, reality try-on view to quite a good level right now. And we have the custom manufacturer technology to quite a good level. We've, we've sold dozens of glasses at in-person pop-up events, but we haven't got the app yet at the stage where you can do a complete sale remotely. And that's what we're working on right now. But we expect that to be uh, in place in, in a few months. It's, 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 not a, it's not a very long way from here. So we've, we've kind of done the kind of high risk, most difficult parts of the technology. And now all that's left, quote unquote, like all, the, all that's left is making a really polished retail app experience. And that's so that's where my main focus is right now. And it, Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, we're still refining some of the other bits of the technology, but that's like the main part of it right now is kind of iOS application development, design iterations to polish it, and integrating it with the, the other bits of the stack that are already there, the server-side code and the manufacturing code. I remember when we first spoke a few months ago, it must have been maybe around the time we met at Swift Summit, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, I think you had just taken on the role or it was around that time. You mentioned that you guys were looking to hire some iOS developers. Are you still looking to hire? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the thing, uh, the thing we're looking for right now especially is iOS application developers. So someone who really knows Cocoa Touch and really enjoys working on a uh, iOS app that needs to meet high standards of design polish. That's, that's, uh, that's the thing we need right now. Are you looking to hire like one senior, or one lead, or a few iOS developers? Probably one to two senior. We already have a, a team in place, which is me and uh, another senior developer, uh, an ex-Apple developer, and uh, actually a second ex-Apple developer who's working for us part-time, uh, who used to work on UIKit, but could use one or two more people. Okay, great. And it would be um, a team works in-house, they work together face-to-face, or... Yep. We're all, we really want to try to stay in San Francisco because especially at this stage of development, I think it's invaluable to have everyone interacting face-to-face if that's at all possible because we have design in-house, we have the manufacturing equipment in-house. We're really a light manufacturing facility. So the oh, wow. we have lasers and robots. Literally, we have lasers and robots <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that are part of our process. Uh, and we have a very nice location in central San Francisco. It used to be Google's robotics office here in San Francisco. Wow. So it's uh, this is kind of special magic you can get when everyone's in one place and they're really jamming on something. That's what we're trying to hold on to. Is the iOS app that's currently um, you know being used or that, that you mentioned, is that built in Swift? Yep, it's uh, 100% Swift 3, except oh, wow. for metal shaders because we're using metal for some of the graphics work that we do. And you interact with Metal using? Uh, I interact with Metal by compiling code that was already there, to be honest. <laughs> and I haven't, been, I haven't uh, oh, okay. developed the Metal shaders myself. Okay, cool. Um, but you do that with Xcode, and they look a bit like C files. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm aware of Metal, but I've never worked with it. So I don't know how you, like, what the API is like. And then maybe we can get into this a little later, but, like, the, the computer vision, like, is any of that, is, is Swift being used at all outside of the iOS application, I guess is a good way to ask. It is not being used currently on any of our server-side code, but that's something I'm actively exploring and have an interest in. Let's save that then, because I want to talk about that um, in depth. But before we do, I want to learn about uh, Alexis. I want to learn about you and like how you got to where you are. So... Can you take us back to like the first or you know earliest kind of memory you have of computers? Hmm, that's going back a bit. I'd say um, <laughs> I'd say I was always drawn to them as a kid, kind of in the way that's common for a lot of people who end up working with computers. Yeah, uh, I remember. I, don't know, I must have been in middle school or at some point. I had the idea that I was going to learn to program. I got interested in a C book, and I didn't really understand it very well. And I remember it being very confusing why you needed to put this ampersand in front of arguments when you wanted to like print out a variable. Uh, and, uh, and although I was sort of, and then I remember there was another sort of simple computer you could kind of plug into a TV. I'm showing how old I am. And, and you could like do a bit of programming on that. Um, and I remember my, my dad actually had a, 
this was before DOS. You had like a CPM machine, like old Osborne portable computer. But portable meant that it was about the size of a large suitcase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the top of it sort of folded down. There was a keyboard. And then there was a screen that was, you know, smaller than an iPad screen. Uh, and I remember, you know, we'd all be playing the board game Clue. And at some point, my father got less interested in playing the board game with us and more interested in like writing his own program to play the board game so we'd all like get down on the floor to play Clue and then he'd whip out this big computer and try to be debugging the program while he's playing so I guess those are some of my earliest memories interesting yeah yeah and it's funny because while I, I guess now that I think about it I had the example of my father who was interested in these things when I was young and I was sort of drawn to it I also kind of ran away from it for a while. So, so, my, so my memories of programming, there were a lot when I was early, and then I kind of avoided it for a while. And then I just eventually, you know, they pulled me right back in. Uh, Your dad was a programmer, or he just... No, he was just a programming enthusiast. He's a, a lawyer, but I think he probably found, like, engineering and programming more interesting than his legal practice. Mm-hmm. So he was so he was involved in Bay Area um, Computer Society and was uh, engaged in figuring out how, how you could use a, a computer to help you with your word processing as a lawyer, sort of much earlier than other people were. They had a really loud printer <laughs> in the house that go bang, 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 bang as it was printing. So I think, yeah, I, I, now that I think about it, I think his, uh, his sort of example probably exposed me to the stuff early. Well, I definitely relate to uh, being a lawyer, but being interested in programming. Um, so <laughs> if anyone knows a little bit about my story, they know what I'm talking about. So, okay, your dad is at least a computer enthusiast, so you're exposed to it early on, but you said you kind of ran away from it, but then you came back to it. So can you describe a little bit about that? Like when you ran away from it, what does that mean? What did that look like? Well, I think, um, I don't think this is really to my credit, but just to kind of be honest about how it all worked out, I was very interested in science, specifically I was very interested in physics. And I think there was a long period of my life where you'd, asked me what I was going to do in my life, I'd say like, well, I'm going to be a physicist, um, definitely, or else like not. <laughs> and that was probably how I analyzed the future. Like either you're a physicist or I guess there's the category of non-physicist, but it didn't, didn't really register with me. And I think I kind of formed the idea in my mind that like physics and science were the true thing and the real thing and the respectable thing. And computers were not. Computers were the sort of uh, like uncool, nerdy thing. I don't know where I got the idea that being a physicist wasn't nerdy <laughs> and, and, and working with computers uh, was, or that it wasn't like quite as elevated a uh, uh, calling or pastime. Yeah, it's interesting. But I avoided. But I yeah, I kind of had that in my head, so I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I sort of stepped away from computery things and focused a lot more deliberately on math and, and physics. Um, but it's one of those things where if you have a real instinctive affinity for it, you st- it still ends up kind of creeping into your life. Like I, I didn't have a proper computer in college, but I'd end up, uh, you know, going to the going to the computer labs that were available and doing my word processing in really roundabout, complicated ways on the Unix machines and figuring out how to do things I probably didn't need to figure out how to do in order to do them or, you know, helping out other people with the, the or my... my my girlfriend at the time with her programming assignments when I wasn't actually taking it. So I, I don't know. It's one of these things where you can kind of resist your nature, but eventually your your nature catches up with you and you're probably better off just being comfortable with who you are and what you love. 
So did you end up becoming a physicist for at least a time? Yeah, well, I studied, uh, I studied it in college, and then uh, I took a bit of a break from science. Uh, but when I got back into science and did a PhD, uh, although I was studying uh, evolutionary theory, I was studying it sort of using applied physics. It was really kind of the way you'd study evolution if you were a physicist wandering into a zoology department. And then in my postdoc, I was working with theoretical physicists. So I think I, wow. didn't, I didn't quite end up getting a PhD in physics, which is probably what my, uh, my sort of sixth grade self would have, would have demanded. But uh, it's been a part of my life, definitely. So you were working on a PhD in physics... No, in theoretical biology, yeah. I, I was sort of okay, applying okay. methods of theoretical physics uh, in studying evolutionary theory in a zoology okay. department. It sounds good. Okay, so you're, you're working on your PhD in theoretical biology. That's right. And, and now you are a CTO. What happens there? You're working on your PhD. What happens? Uh, so I work on my PhD. I get my PhD. Um, around this oh, time, nice. I congratulations. Al- so yeah. you're a doctor. I am. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Alexis Gallagher. Yes. Dr. Gallagher. Um, <laughs> I should say, by the way, it's really hard to, uh, study theoretical biology because the topic almost doesn't exist, but I actually found one of the bona fide official professors of theoretical biology and studied with him. So I guess that makes me a theoretical biologist. Um, right. so what happened was, yeah, I got my PhD, uh, around that time, I also had my first child, and uh, looking at the salaries that were on offer <laughs> if you were a postdoc, uh, I saw there was going to be a problem <laughs> with uh, uh, supporting uh, my wife in the way I wanted to while, the, while my son was very young. So I ended up working myself into the somewhat unusual position of uh, going into finance for a bit, and then wow. working part-time at a bank in finance where I was working on trading systems, and then part-time uh, at a postdoc. So I was sort of half doing scientific research and then half working at the city, uh, meaning the Financial Center of London, uh, doing essentially programming work related to um, trading systems for banks. So I, I was still sort of actually involved in science and I was doing research, but I was also doing these other things that made more money. So when you, you say you're doing programming related to like financial systems or banking systems, you said. That's right. How were you qualified to accept that position? Um, well, I was uh, good with computers and good with math and they needed help and they were happy to have me. Wow. So what type of programming war was that? Was that like, I don't know, Java or something or what type of programming was that? C++. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay, so you're doing this, you're working on these financial banking systems. Half, half of the time. The other half <laughs> working on evolutionary theory, mathematical models, evolutionary theory. Yeah. Right. Okay. So then how does that, how does that lead to, you know, where you are now? I mean, that seems, it seems like you made a really big, at some point you made a big decision like you're like oh I'm just gonna I mean I don't know maybe you're still doing physics related stuff I mean I guess you kind of are but like it seems like you're more dedicated to the software right I mean you're a CTO you're like dedicated how do you how do you make that transition well I think um, over time uh, I 
kind of rediscovered that finance wasn't really my calling. And it was around the time the iPhone came out. That seemed really cool. And, and mobile seemed cool. And the technology also seemed like something that if you learned it, you'd be able to use it in lots of different places, um, lots of different geographies. At the time I was living in London, and if and one of the features of working in finance is that there are not that many financial centers, and you also tend to become specialized in, uh, you're, you're at the risk of becoming an expert in the code base of like one of a half dozen Rules and regulations of London finance versus... Yeah, that, or finance. even like one particular bank or another. Um, oh, okay. Because the, they have the gigantic legacy code bases that are very important. So oh, actual of, code bases, okay. Yeah, so you can sort of make a career out of having crucial knowledge that's worth a lot of money to an institution. Um, whereas I thought... Uh, you know, the kind of promise of the iPhone was that if you learn how to make these things, you can maybe work for yourself. You can make beautiful products. Uh, you could do it anywhere, and then you could sort of sell them. And that just seemed like a very uh, appealing vision, and it seemed also like something that was up and coming. It would be cool. And so I decided to really dive into well, iPhone development, and iOS development. And I think... Uh, when I moved to San Francisco, which was about, moved back to San Francisco, actually, because I did grow up here, um, that was also just a moment of, you know, this is a city where you can do really interesting work in tech. So it deserves your full attention. Uh, and uh, it's quite hard, really, to organize your life so that you're kind of living two very different lives simultaneously. It's possible. I, I've done it, but I, I'm not sure I recommend it. And it definitely... I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of fully involved and fulfilled and engaged and just trying to do what I'm doing now. So maybe maybe some uh, maybe some some possible future in the distant future, I might start doing other things again. But I, I'm quite happy just working on what I'm doing in software. I think that the research you're, that you were maybe doing during the physics kind of stuff, you're still doing now, right? With the exploring the lesser known subtleties of Swift, right? That's a lot of like research and experimenting. Um, so, okay, the, the iPhone comes out, you're in London, you have this a thought, this epiphany, and I mean, what do you just say? Okay, wife, son, we're going to go to San Francisco. Let's go. I mean, how do you, you change your whole life around? How do you make that decision? Well, I started uh, with iOS development in London for a bit before we actually moved, but we'd, we'd been in the UK almost 10 years, so it was a time to oh, wow. think about... Yeah, no, it was cool. It wasn't the plan originally. You sort of arrive somewhere and you think you'll do it for a while, and then, then you wake up and 10 years have passed. So I, I lived in the UK a little over it was a little over 10 years before we moved. Before that, we are living in Italy. Um, and then uh, it was just a natural point because of the age that... Uh, the kids were, and because of how long we'd been there, to think about going somewhere else. So we drew up a list of different places we might move to, and um, San Francisco was one of the ones on the list, and it just seemed like the right one for a few reasons, partly because of the, the richness of the tech scene here, uh, partly because I grew up here and my parents are still here. Uh, and so we got on a plane and moved to San Francisco. Did you take a new job? No. See, I... Except for my work uh, in science, I've been an independent contractor almost my whole career. So I had a full-time salary job immediately after college. But then, since then, except for my time in science and uh, as a postdoc, 
I've always worked as an independent contractor. So, so oh, sometimes wow. I've been on site where you're sort of working alongside full-time employees. Sometimes I've been working from my own office or, or, or doing pieces of work, but I've always been a contractor. Uh, so I just kind of threw myself over to San Francisco and assumed that I'd be able to keep contracting as, as I had before with, with old clients or with new clients and that it all sort itself out, which it did. Uh, so this job that I've taken now, CTO, is actually the first kind of proper full-time salaried job that I've had, uh, excluding science since, well, yes, yeah, since I graduated college, which was quite a while ago. Wow. Okay. So during the time when you were working as a consultant, let's say, um, when, you know, once you started doing iOS development and then you moved to San Francisco up until your current role, were you focused on iOS or were you doing other types of um, software development as a contractor? Um, well, some of, so I did some work for startups way back around the first dot-com bubble. Oh. So it was Java work. Um, I did a couple miscellaneous pieces of work in the course of, uh, while I was also doing my PhD. But I also was distracted with other things. I, I, I spent a fair bit of time doing things unrelated to either, either science or computing. And... Yeah. Um, and then uh, the work I did in finance in London, I did as a contractor. So the, the, the markets there, there's some people who kind of work for the bank's employees, but there's a lot of people who, where the relationship is that you're structured to work as a contractor. Uh, and then I started working for McKinsey and Company uh, doing iOS work as a contractor. Um, and then uh, when I got, and then I, but then I also had other pieces of work uh, for smaller clients. So it's it really varied. Like saying you're working as a contractor, doesn't really answer the question of what kind of work you're doing because you could have a long-term contract, which is a bit more like a normal employment relationship, or you could have short-term pieces of work that you do for non-technical clients where you're um, you're not part of a team. You're really completing a whole project for someone. It's quite varied. Re- really, I think what it what it means is that you have a uh, a certain independence, or at least a sort of feeling of independence about the way you work. That's probably the thing that all the, all these ways of working have in common. So why did you decide to uh, take on like a CTO role um, and be an employee as opposed to continue as a contractor? I mean, a lot of people listening, they might be a contractor and they might be thinking about making the same transition. Well, I started actually working uh, for this company as a contractor and it took me a while to realize that this is the one I really wanted to be more deeply involved in. The reason... So we're, first of all, I think the technology we're working with is really cool. And in a way, it took me a while to, to realize that because I think I, uh, you know, if you spend a lot of time as a contractor, you get a bit jaundiced. I think it can be a slightly, uh, I don't want to say damaging, but it, it can have a certain effect on your perspective. You get used to like doing things and then leaving, doing things and then leaving. And it gets sort of exhausting to not care about things over and over again or to care in this very uh, limited way. Right, um, shallow or it's a short time period maybe. Yeah, like you're very focused on getting a result and delivering a good result within the bounds of what you're doing, but uh, there's not an expectation that you're going to be there indefinitely. Um, and Build something and watch it grow. And yeah, yeah. And, and so you just have a kind of different relationship to your work and different sort of uh, emotional distance or emotional closeness around it. 
and, and I remember having a conversation with the CEO at one point, and he was saying, like, you know, I think you realize we're doing some pretty cool stuff here. And I thought about it, and I realized, oh, wow, this is cool stuff, actually. <laughs> like, 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 it was, again, one of these, I hadn't noticed, I'm in fashion, or I hadn't noticed, this is cool. <laughs> we're doing augmented reality, and we've got, uh, you know, computer vision and automated manufacture, and it needs to be really good. So I think it was, the fact that there's so much interesting technology in what we're doing, also the fact that I think the business makes sense, I think... Um, I think we're producing a product that uh, is really valuable to some people. We know that from from the ones we've sold. It just just seemed like the right thing. It's a very very exciting thing to be working on. I wanted to be more deeply engaged in it. So when Swift comes out in June two thousand fourteen, it sounds like you had quite a bit of Objective C experience at yeah. that point. Yeah. So what what was your what were you kind of doing at that time do you remember um, it comes out june 2014 were you working as a contractor were you working on a lot of ios projects yes yeah, so i was uh i had a contract where i was working on an ios project that was a kind of debating app uh unfortunately that project didn't quite work out in the way we all wanted it to but uh it was a case where i could start using swift right away since i was the only person building the app and there wasn't um there wasn't a kind of large code base of, that needed to be interoperated with or a lot of other developers that needed to be coordinated with. And for me, it was very exciting because uh, I've been interested in functional programming for a while and had experience with some functional programming languages, uh, mostly with Clojure. And I think because of that, when Swift came out, I was primed to recognize certain language features and to see their potential. And it created this opportunity for these sort of two parts of my programming life that seemed to have no connection, uh, functional programming and iOS development to, to come together in a way that was very exciting. So I, I was immediately very enthusiastic about the language because I could, uh, it sort of gave me a way to take the stuff that used to just be a lot of fun and start, you know, using it and having it be part of how it worked. Closure, it's uh, similar to Swift, right? I thought I've, I've seen some comparisons. Well, it's a... Uh, Lisp, it's a modern Lisp dialect, and it runs on the JVM, and it's mostly used in servers uh, oh, okay. for server-side development. But it is a functional programming language, and it does place an emphasis on immutable values. Uh, so in that way, it has some similarities to Swift, but more I'd say it's, the, it's kind of deep core ideas in the kind of mindset around um, immutability uh, okay. th- that are the things... You know, Swift shares with functional programming. Maybe languages. I'm thinking. Oh, I'm thinking of Kotlin. Yeah. Well, Kotlin's probably closer because Kotlin, as I understand it, is a typed language, whereas Clojure is Clojure's a dynamically typed. But Kotlin is statically typed. I think. I don't. I don't know Kotlin. This is my vague memory. Uh, so that's cool. You were able to. You had an opportunity to just work with Swift from day one. Then, as you said, you had a. a I did. I did. I dove right in. I, I don't know if that was. 100% the best choice. I think it probably was defensible, but uh, I, I couldn't stop myself. And I really just enjoyed it right away. And I could see right away how I could use parts of it, use parts of the language to make things easier than they would be in Objective-C. We're going through our Swift uh, 3 conversion. We have a branch um, up, uh, but we're working on new features, so that branch needs to get you know rebased and then reconverted. Um, but it's going to be it's going to be um, merged soon, I hope. Um, you can, and so I, I know there's like a little bit of growing pains, um, but since you've kind of been working with Swift from day one in production, it sounds like, you can talk a little bit about your thoughts on the state of Swift then. Um, 
I, I've been hearing more and more that people feel like it's ready. You can really use it. Objective-C developers like that. Um, what's that one? Under the Radar. They, they just had an episode about Swift and how they're starting to use it. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, no, I think it's very usable. I use it every day. I don't, I don't feel like um, the imperfections of the tooling, you know, the compile times and, and ways in which Xcode's not as great for Swift are so severe that you should stay away from it. So you are hiring people. Let's say someone comes in uh, to apply for, you know, iOS developer job. They have zero Objective C experience. Uh, is that a lot of points against them, or or do you think you know someone can just learn Swift? And I don't know. I think okay if someone's a, a good developer and they think clearly and they know Swift really well, I don't really care if they have no Objective C experience. But I should say the the inverse or the opposite is also sort of true. If someone comes in and they really know Cocoa Touch, like it's someone who's been, you know, hacking away with Cocoa for like five or six or, or ten with years. With only Objective-C experience. Yeah, with only Objective-C. And they've decided that now, you know, the water's warm enough and they can they can dive into Swift. Like, great. Uh, I, I love that. You know, as long as they actually want to learn Swift and they're not going to be, you know, resenting it the whole time. Like, I don't think it's a problem that they don't know it yet. I mean... If you're a smart person, you can learn things. And if you already know Cocoa Touch, I think the frameworks are the real challenge. The language is not... The languages are relatively superficial things. Because um, if you study a few programming languages, like a few that are different from each other, at a certain point, you see almost all the language features that you're likely to run into. So learning a new programming language is not such a stretch. It's more like, oh, it's got this bit like this and that bit like that. And, you know, you, fi you figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about your focus on Swift, your interest, and actually a little bit about how Alexis and I sort of met. Uh, we met at Swift Summit uh, in person, but I knew about you before uh, we met at Swift Summit because of the Protocols with Associated Types video that you did uh, a, while, uh, a little while ago. I can't remember... Um, that was the Functional Swift Conference, I think, where I did that one. Yeah, but it was—I don't know if you've done it recently. It was definitely like last year, at least at, at the earliest, right? Or I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think no, I think it may have been December two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Okay. So that's, right. um, that's probably the one then, and uh, I can't remember why. I think I was doing some like protocol. Um, I, was, I was doing some protocol-oriented programming. My protocol had an associated type. I was trying to like. And then I had um, these two structures that maybe were common, and then they had this, you know, property that I was going to say was a protocol. Like, let's say you have an auto policy and you have a, a home policy, and both of these policies have a product, let's say. Right. But the product could be a car, and the, other, uh, the product for a home policy could be a property, but they're both a product, right? Mm -hmm. And so you might make a protocol. And that protocol might have associated type. And then when you go to declare that that um, property as a as a product, it'd be like, no, sorry, you can't. You know, this it's very frustrating, be isn't it? As a generic, uh, what is it? <laughs> this protocol cannot be used as a something because it has generic. I can't remember the warning. It's something you know like because it can only be used as a generic constraint or something. Because like it has it has associated type requirements. I actually, just de dealt with that again today yep. with one of my um, colleagues who's a really smart Swift developer, um, Daniel. Shout out to Daniel. And we, that same warning came up. And the video, I was like, dude, you got to watch this video, Alexis Gallagher. Anyways, so I sent him <laughs> that video. I'll link it in the show notes. And so 
I'm, I'm like struggling with this because I'm having a lot of fun coding in this way, but then I'm like struggling with this warning. And so I'm searching the internet and I find your your video. There's a few other people that talked about it. I think Rush Bishop has something on it, but your video was really great. And I'm like, man, this guy, like where did he get this information? Does he like work at Apple or something? And so thank you first off for that video. Oh, you're welcome. Um, how do you, how does this how did this come about? Let's start with that. Um, not necessarily a video. Like maybe there was something before. Like how did this come about that you started to explore these lesser known subtleties of Swift? Well, I think it's um, a good question. I think what happened was I agreed to write uh, a couple chapters on the Swift Apprentice book for Ray Wendelick. This was the oh, first. Oh, great! Edition. Shout out! I love that book. That changed my life. Thank you so much to. Uh, Matthias, I think. Anyways. So I wrote the chapters on functional programming, which I knew something about. Uh, and then I also wrote the chapter on generics. And the reason I wanted to write the chapter on generics is because I never really had a lot of experience with generics. I'd used kind of generic-like systems in um, you know, C++. Uh, and I had, had a little study group on Haskell at my house, so I kind of had a sense for um, uh, parametric polymorphism, which is seems to be kind of like what they call generics in the world of uh, statically typed functional programming languages. Uh, but I wanted to write the chapter because I wanted to understand them properly in Swift. And, and if you want to learn something well, just sort of say you're going to do a talk on it or write a chapter on it, and you'll end up learning more about it than you, than you would have otherwise. Mm. Uh, and, and in the course of understanding that material, I was messing around with Swift protocols and protocols with associated types, and I, and I realized how um, odd they were. And also, I think I encountered this error message that everyone else encounters all, all the time. Like, everyone was encountering this message, this, this error message when they tried to do the thing, you, when they tried to use a protocol of an associated type in the way you'd use an Objective-C protocol. And uh, I think because I'd been having to think clearly about generics to describe them in my own language because of that, uh, and because I had had some exposure to Haskell and uh, functional and parametric polymorphism and a standard ML and like other languages, not from the kind of C family, but that, that had a generic like systems. Because of that, I was probably primed to think that all these things might be connected in some way. Um, and that led me just to sort of dig into it and dig into it and try to really understand, you know, what's going on and, and why is it confusing. And, and then, uh, uh, Chris Edoff, who was organizing the Functional Swift conference, mentioned that he was organizing a conference, and uh, and I was, so I sent him a, a thing saying, "Hey, maybe I could talk." And he says, "Well, maybe we have a slot." I'm like, "Well, I'm interested in this question, and I don't know what the answer is, but I think that there's some like connection with other functional languages," so, um, and that and that's how I ended up writing the talk. But really, it was having a bit of a background from tr having tried to understand the generic system really well, and then just being kind of baffled about what was going on but suspecting there were connections to other things and then just thinking about it for a long time. Um, but the thing that I found uh, gratifying about that afterwards is that, you know, when I gave the talk, I really had no idea if other people were encountering this error. I, I didn't know if I was giving a topic, a talk on a really esoteric topic no one would care about. Or, I mean, that was my expectation, actually. I'm going to, you know, I've found some academic papers that suggest that the design of protocols sort of connected to, you know, Haskell. It doesn't sound like a 
huge crowd pleaser. Um, but it ended up being really, I think it ended up being something that a lot of people liked because everyone was encountering that error message and no one knew why. And Apple's publicity was not particularly helpful for understanding the context. So it, it was one of these things where you encounter something and you think it's only your problem um, because no one else is talking about it. But then if you just think about it hard enough uh, and spend enough time with it, you realize that you should be confused. It's genuinely confusing and everyone else is confused too. And that feels good. All right. So two things. First, what is parametric polymorphism? Number two is when you're researching, let's say this specific topic, you said you're thinking a lot about it, but you're also like researching and looking into it. How are you doing that? Like, Where are you going to find out more information? Uh, so first question has a correct answer which means I'm most likely to get it wrong. <laughs> but I would say... Okay, I'll, I can but link say to parametric, it. But like, so, so if you go and program... So there's a really good course on program... I had one, I've taken one course on computer on programming, and that's the programming language course on Coursera from, I think, University of Washington. Okay. They go through standard ML and Ruby and Scheme, and they do a really good job of introducing core concepts in programming language theory. Okay. And so parametric... And so you have two kinds... You have commonly... You can think of yourself as having two kinds of polymorphism. Subtype polymorphism is what you have in Objective C, where you have a class and then you have different subclasses underneath it that are so all like everything inherits from NS object. Yeah, so this this sort of catechism we're all taught when you like learn Java or Objective C about a animal uh, is a cat, a dog is a cat. There is a relationship. That's like okay. subtype polymorphism, and then parametric polymorphism is in a sense uh, the other kind. That's what you get, and this is often called generics in the, in the land of um, C++, but it's just pretty much the same thing, but it's called parametric polymorphism if you're in the land of Haskell or standard ML or okay. the typed functional languages. Okay, so it's like generics, which are kind of hard to understand sometimes and hard to teach. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a fancy word for generics, but, but, but if you go like the, the, the systems that those languages have are, are deeper than the generic systems that you get in like C++. So if you Google on those words and understand the syntax of those languages, you get a deeper context and deeper analysis of like what's possible and fancy ways to do it. Okay, so then the second question is, how are you, how are you learning about the depths of, like how did you learn all that stuff that you explained? You explained a lot of stuff in that video. How do you find that information out? Um, I think some of it is the usual way, which is you kind of, I, I did find Russ Bishop's, uh, blog article, and that kind of got me started on some things to look for. So looking at how Scala approached things <clears throat> and how um, Martin Odersky, who's the uh, author of Scala, described the problem, but then how other people describe the problem. Once you know the name for the problem, then you can Google it and see how other people in the literature talk about it. So some okay. of it is just research, which, which you can describe as the process of kind of blindly Googling things that seem relevant and kind of writing down bits that you understand and trying to piece it together. Um, and then some of it what I've found really useful is kind of keeping a notebook as I go. So I'll write down things that I think are true. Uh, and then if I'm not sure I can write a statement that's true because I don't know if I really understand what all the words mean in the sentence, then I just write a question. And, if I, and I say, if I knew the answer to this question, then I'd know if it's true or not. And then that forces you to think about, well, what the question is and, and how do you answer it? So just this having a rigorous conversation with yourself where you're always trying to identify the thing that's confusing and just dive deeper into that. Just keep doing that and eventually you end up 
understanding something a little better. Is, is, that's, my, that's my method. Uh, yeah, and so it sounds like you really actually needed to understand the problem first, like really understand what was the problem that you were dealing with, uh, not that going beyond just the error message. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. I think there are like deep roots here, and, and I think Apple's um, presentation of protocols with associated types, I won't say it's misleading, but it's incomplete because they call them protocols, so you expect that you can use them like Objective-C protocols. But actually, I have a, another talk I give on it where you can draw a Venn diagram of, you know, one circle is places where you can use Objective-C protocols. Then the other circle is places where you can use protocols with associated types. And then you can look at the intersection. And there's no intersection at all. They're totally different things. Um, but Apple doesn't give that impression. <laughs> uh, or, or I think at the earlier WWC talks, maybe they didn't make that as clear as you could. Um, but you can't understand the error unless you understand, like, that that's the case, first of all. And then you, when you find out that's the case, you ask, well, why would someone build this crazy thing? And then to understand that, uh, you want to look at these examples of, uh, you know, like the, the cow has a, a particular type of food it eats. So then you want to have a protocol for animal and then the associated type is food and you can express relationships that way that you couldn't do with a class hierarchy. But unless you find that kind of deeper context, it's all a bit mysterious. So is this related at all um, to like the generics manifesto and like getting fixed eventually? Like is, is Swift, do you know if Swift is like on track to sort of fix this problem or? I don't. Uh, or maybe I th- it's not possible. Yeah, so I had conversations with um, Joe Groff and some of the others on the team about this, and they definitely, their original plan, I don't know where things are right now, but their original plan would have, it was to have existentials, which, this could be wrong, but my, I think that's just the fancy word that you use for um, polymorphism, <laughs> if you're coming at it from a... Um, more of the sort of functional programming static type system background. So the plan was that you wouldn't have this error message because you'd have an automatic kind of polymorphism done for you by the language system. But it was harder to implement that than they expected within the time constraints. So the question is, does it ever get done? Because it's sort of on the roadmap, but I don't know if I don't know if everyone runs out of steam before they complete the roadmap. But my, my last I talked to them, it was all still about to happen. I, I think the guys who've designed this stuff the, the swift language team has done a brilliant job and they and they have a they they understand all this stuff much more deeply than uh, I do and I I'm glad that they know what they're doing and, and and I have the sense every time I kind of talk to them I have the sense that the sort of deep plan that underlies their the fundamental choices was very well thought through and uh, it's just a matter of how much of it gets completed hopefully all of it does so I just uh, realized there's a bunch more things I want to talk to you about. So I, I need to ask you, uh, what are some new things that you've found uh, that are similar to like paths? Is there anything new that you've kind of discovered um, that you have been tinkering with or thinking about or you know preparing to talk about? Well, there was a talk I gave a, a little while ago over at Realm on value semantics. Oh, that's right. Which is a little bit like paths in that it's another technical talk on a topic where I think it was sort of in it's sort of something that we encounter every day but it's um, it, it has these subtleties that are uh, a little bit easy to overlook when you just sort of dive into to using the language and, and you read the Swift programming language book 
So uh, that's that's a sort of related issue. I guess. It's, it's not related, but it has a similar sort of feel to it about a kind of subtlety of language that you notice. And, and then if you just keep staring at it, you realize there's a lot more there than you thought. I was just talking to Daniel, actually. He mentioned that uh, that was like reference semantics versus value semantics. And it was um, something about like making your reference, like using your reference types or declaring your reference types like value types or something like that, or, or using value semantics, something like that? Well, if you Google around to figure out what people mean by value semantics, I think you get a lot of inconsistent answers. I don't think there's a completely well-defined <clears throat> definition. Uh, certainly not across language communities, maybe not even within like a single language community. So, um, so just defining it clearly is hard, but I think, I think it's valuable. So if I, if I were going to put it in a nutshell, I'd say that uh, this also came out of having to write a chapter about it and then sort of coming up with a way of thinking about it that I was happy with. If, if you have to put it in a nutshell, I'd say that the, the key idea here is that if someone gives you a type and uh, you want to know how you can use it, you want to know what it's safe to do with it, then you could ask the question, you know, is it a value type or a reference type? Like, is it a struct or a class? But that doesn't actually tell you the things that you want to know about it. doesn't actually tell you what's safe to do. Because if it happens to be a value type, like a struct, that contains a reference type inside it, that has a property inside it that's a class, then that messes up the way it behaves and, and, and makes it not so tidy. Um, the question you should really be asking is not, is it a value type or a reference type, but does it have value semantics? And, and there's a certain set of conditions that, that if a type meets, it'll have value semantics. So like value types that only contain value types all have value semantics. Um, also, uh, reference types, like classes that are totally immutable, they also have value semantics. Okay. And so like, all right, this is sort of putting it off. Like, wh what's the benefit? Like, wh what is the thing that you get if, um, if a type has value semantics? Uh, and to put it in one sentence, the formulation that I'm happy with is to say that if a type has value semantics, then the only way you can uh, change the value of a variable is through that variable itself. Which sounds like you're not saying anything, but it's actually saying a lot. So if you have a variable x and you know the uh, x is of a type foo, where foo has value semantics, then whatever happens, the only way x is going to change is if you actually do something to x. There's nothing else that can get at it. In, in that sense, it's, is it kind of saying the same thing by saying like you make a copy? Like you're never changing the thing, you're only ever like making a copy when you change like, well a making a copy thing. is one way to get that effect right okay so let's say i mean so the kind of classic example here when people start talking about value types is they talk about integers like if i have an integer x that's 42 and then i assign to another integer y that's 42 um if i now go and change x you know y is not going to get changed because right. you know one's the one's a copy of the other but i think thinking about what's happening at the level of is it a copy or not is uh getting further into the implementation than you really could, than you really need to. Because okay. there are other types that have this property, right? So let's take UI image, for example. Like if you look at the way UI image is built, there are no settable properties on it. It's all read-only properties. So if I have a variable X that points to a UI image of me smiling, right? Mm. And then I assign X to Y, where Y is another UI image uh, variable. 
And now I just, you know, show you, I've already done this, and now I give you x and y. Uh, you can't really tell if y is a copy of x or if x and y are pointing to the same thing. Why is because, that? Because there's no way you can change the thing they're pointing to. If, if, I, if I give you um, two variables, but they're both pointing to the same thing, but that thing is totally unchangeable, that thing is immutable, then it behaves exactly as if they were pointing to two different things. So again, it sounds like sort of the value semantics, one of the big effects of it is like this immutability. Well, the immutability is one way to achieve value semantics. Okay. But the, but the, but the essential benefit of value semantics from the point of view of the user of the type is that you don't need to worry about the possibility of someone else changing the thing that you're so that, working with. And that's, so that's like the main benefit. That's why any of that sort of matters. That's sort of the main benefit. Yeah, and, and, and the reason okay. I say this is not esoteric is that every talk about value types, when they're selling you the benefit of value types, the benefit they're describing is not a benefit that all value types have. Um, and it's not a benefit that's exclusive to, to value types. Uh, the, the benefit they're describing is actually the benefit of value semantics which is a bit different. Interesting. Wow. How did you come across this, or how did this, how did you think to to just talk about this? So uh, the Swift Apprentice book had a second edition, <laughs> where the, where they decided to cut the chapter on functional programming because it wasn't oh, the no. big thing anymore. Yes. Yeah, so, so then so then I ended up writing. Uh, I was supposed to write a chapter on value types, um, but I didn't. But I found the way value types were explained a bit confusing because it seemed to be missing this this issue but I didn't really understand what this issue was and so I just thought about it a lot and tried to think about a way of describing it that made sense and did some digging on how it's talked about in other language communities and that ended up that and I got some feedback from other people to help helping to think about this and that led me to this formulation of value semantics and then eventually I, I thought well, well geez I've already written a whole chapter I might as well give a talk on it and so then I give a talk on it well, might I point out then that um, at least you benefit from like committing to something that you might not know exactly what it is, you know, and then you end up discovering like these really cool things. And so if you guys are listening, um, maybe you could do that too. You know, just tell somebody, hey, I'm going to teach you this thing or I'm going to learn about this thing or I'm going to talk about this thing, even if you don't even know about it yet. And that's an excuse to go learn about it and you might discover even more than you thought you would have. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely been the case for me, and that's part of partly why I've committed to giving um, a couple talks on machine learning, which I'm not exactly an expert in in the moment. But the, the process of putting together a talk uh, definitely galvanizes you to get your thoughts in order. Is uh, that going to be Swift, like machine learning with Swift? Uh, yes, but uh, but exactly where you can use Swift best is something I'm still figuring out. So so. Um, you know, machine learning is a broad topic for cert certain classes of algorithms and the, and the methods that are used to develop them and, and uh, teaching computers how to do things through experience and data. And Apple provides some tools for executing machine learning models, um, in, in which you could define. And you can use Swift for that to interact with the Apple APIs to do it. The Accelerate framework, right? So there's two ways to do it. Um, that Apple provides uh, that are worth knowing about. So one is the Accelerate framework, but then the other is actually the what's called Metal Performance Shaders. Oh, so wow. so both of these frameworks will provide the primitives that you use to build neural network models. So wow. basically, how it works is you 
have some problem that you're trying to understand. You think a neural network model might be the right kind of model for understanding it. You use some other library probably, proper, probably to actually uh, define the model and train it and figure out exactly the weights of all the components in the neural network. But then if you want to run the neural network on iPhones really fast, you can put it in Accelerate or you can put it in Metal Performance Shaders. And you should probably do it in Metal Performance Shaders because those are GPU accelerated, so they're going to be faster. Okay. And that, that, that's the Swift bit of that. Um, but I think uh, probably there'll be more opportunities for Swift as well in other parts of the stack. I'm still trying to understand that. Yeah, because one thing I think about a lot is what uh, we can use Swift for as Swift developers. So, you know, obviously all the Apple platforms, just writing applications for, you know, the four platforms. Then you have Swift on the server. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited um, about that. Command line, like tools, like a little, you know, either scripts or um, binaries, you know, little command line tools. Um, Chris Latner was talking about building systems, um, you know, maybe some type of, and, and so then when I speak with someone like you who knows about, you know, this type of stuff, then I'm wondering, okay, what about machine learning? I hear all this stuff about machine learning and computer vision, and I think Python, it seems like everyone's using Python, or like data science. I don't even know what that is, but like, so what is, like, what what is it lacking, if anything? Is it lacking something? Like, why is it, like, what, can it get there? And like, what does it need? Well, so a lot of scientific computing is done in Python. I, when I did my um, PhD thesis, a lot of that work was mathematical, but there was also a computational part, and I, I used Python for that. And now there's quite good tooling around using Python. And it's not because Python's a particularly high-performance language, nor is it particularly strict language. Uh, the reason Python works well for scientific computing, as near as I can tell, is because it's very approachable. So if someone doesn't have a computer science background, is more coming from a mathematical or data background, they can sort of pick up Python and feel comfortable with it right away. And then because people, maybe as a result of that, or maybe just coincidentally, people have built up really good libraries. And all, the libraries are all probably written in C or C++, but they expose a Python interface. Um, Interesting. So, for instance, uh, this Wednesday I'm going to be at the, I'm hoping to be at the Google TensorFlow Summit. TensorFlow is this system that Google has, open source uh, project that that Google is promoting that you can use for building uh, neural networks, other sorts of machine learning models. And the best interface for it is all in Python. Um, So, like, could you build a Swift language interface to the kind of core TensorFlow libraries, which are probably implemented in C++. Yeah, you could. Um, would it have benefits? Like, it would be great if it were there. I'd prefer that to the Python interface, probably. Uh, but someone has to do that work. Yeah, but if someone's going to do that work. Is it likely to happen? I think probably not, to be honest, because the kind of weight of the ecosystem that's built up around Python for doing this kind of work is so substantial that the fact that it's not the like best language for it ends up being a bit secondary. And I think that's the case in general, right? Like people, languages prosper when their platforms prosper. Like everyone knows JavaScript because JavaScript's the only thing you can run in a browser. Everyone learned C because C was the easiest, simplest compiler to implement on these very primitive Unix machines back in the day. Um, we're all learning Swift because you can use Swift on Apple's platforms. If Swift was just a cool language without the integrations with Apple's platforms, no, no one would be using it. So... You know, I think it's, if you're working with a language, you want to hope it was designed by thoughtful 
tasteful people who understand languages. But um, in a way, that's just good luck. You're going to end up using <laughs> whatever language, whatever language uh, is the best one for the platform that you're committed to. So it sounds like there's some things you can do, uh, as you said, with metal shader, um, metal performance metal shader, metal metal performance shaders, and then mm-hmm. accelerate. But it it seems like it's not really there fully yet. Like it sounds like you're only you're only going to use it maybe a little bit, but you're going to have to probably use some other language. I think um, that's the best way to get a highly high performance execution of these models on iOS devices. So it's it's all fairly new stuff. A lot of this just came out in WW 2016. Right. Right. Um, but I think it would it would be unusual for someone to be defining and training the models using Swift at this point. Probably you're going to use other systems for that and then you just use use Swift or whatever you need to use to talk to um, Apple's frameworks to execute the models on, on iOS. So then, so then it sounds like it's just the, the libraries that are kind of missing and maybe over the time those can get built up. Or built the wrappers, up. wrappers for the libraries, like the, like the TensorFlow stuff, like the, right. high, the actual stuff that does high performance numeric computation is going to be C++ okay. or C. Um, okay. Uh, Other than that, then it could be like if those APIs, those wrappers were good, then it'd be nice to use. Yeah, that'd be great. Swift. Okay. Maybe one day, maybe one day we'll get there. But they don't even um, have good C wrappers yet. So, you know, I think they're probably going to do that before they do Swift. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you before we uh, end was the Alexa thing with Swift. Like, oh, yeah. I know you probably wrote about it a bunch, but... I didn't actually. I just did the talk. <laughs> and, then, and then that was it. Kind of. I should have written about it. Wait, the talk that I saw? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. So you briefly... Or, I don't know. I kind of just remember you mentioning, like, you were able to run Swift code on Alexa through some little like kind of loophole like you have one line of JavaScript that just calls out yeah to, yeah that's right so can you can you describe that so it's the Amazon Echo device uh, which is a kind of black column thing you get and that talks to the Alexa voice service I, I call mine Echo because if I called it Alexa then it would always anytime anyone in my house spoke to me it would think they would think they were talking to the robot instead right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, and I gave that talk on Swift Summit on conversational UIs. And so what I really wanted to, and I uh, sort of planned this talk before Apple announced uh, SiriKit. And so the original plan was for the talk was just, hey, you can't use Siri, but you can use Amazon's Alexa instead. So we're going to program that with Swift. But then they announced uh, SiriKit and speech recognition APIs. So then I felt like I should target those a bit more because they're sort of more natural for the platform, but I still really wanted to do the Alexa thing. So basically to program Amazon's devices, you're not running code on the device. Uh, what All you do is define a web service, which you know you oh. could program in anything. You can program it in Python, you can program it in Rails, you can program it in JavaScript, in Java. You could program it in Common Lisp or Mathematica. Like all you need to do is provide an appropriately authenticated uh, service that vends JSON. Um, However, there's a bit of a challenge, which is the appropriately authenticated part. So like, let's say you set up your JSON service that Amazon will query for, to get responses for the voice service. Okay. Um, it seems like it's really complicated and annoying to wrap up the service in all the certificates that you need to use so that Amazon will uh, treat this as a valid application running on a server. 
Okay. Uh, like it would be like a couple days. But there's this oh, loophole. Wow. Well, it would be for me. If you were like a total ninja with open SSL, maybe it would just be a couple hours. Um, okay, so for me, it'd be like a week. I, you know, open SSL is like a jungle you could die in if you just went in there without the right mosquito repellent. So I don't know. It's one of those <laughs> things where you know you never know how long it's going to be when you have to do that. Um, okay. But Amazon also provides this service called Amazon Lambda, which is super interesting. It's a serverless um, a system where you just provide enough code to define a single function, and then they take responsibility for hosting the function, executing it rapidly. You get build per millisecond based on like how long it took to execute the function. And if you implement your Amazon Alexa service using using Lambda, then you get authentication for free. Oh wow! So what I figured I could do is uh, use Lambda to back the Amazon. Alexa service, which they recommend, but then use Swift uh, to actually define the service. And the way you can do that is you're actually allowed to upload um, binary code uh, for your Lambda function as long as it's called from JavaScript. So you just create a little bit of JavaScript there, and what that JavaScript does is it gets a request, and then the JavaScript calls an executable, and then the JavaScript listens for the results in the executable and like spits that out in JavaScript. So you have this like, JavaScript wrapper around a was actually just a Swift command line function, which just takes the input through standard in and then just prints the output to standard out. So you're just using JavaScript as a sort of shim around it in order wow. to um, in order to get Swift in there. Wow. <laughs> How did you figure that out? Um, uh, how did I figure that out? Well, I think I was... <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So I, 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 mean, I, I guess that's just what you do. You just like figure out these like weird little... Things, man, that's well, so cool. Yeah, so I, it partly is like try, uh, first I was looking at the authentication stuff, and it just seemed too hard and kind of boring. Like I spent all this time, and all I would have done was figure out how to use OpenSSL, and it seemed like it would take the same amount of time to figure out how to get Swift running in the Lambda container as it would just to use OpenSSL for what it's supposed to do. So obviously, you're going to do the fun thing instead of the boring, sensible thing if you're if you're doing a talk. <laughs> um, so wait. How did, so how did you, you wrote the Swift code, like let's say in Xcode and you like as a command line tool and you built it and exported it like as a binary and uploaded it to, to uh, Lambda? Yeah. So, so what happens is if you go and look at the, go look at the like big nerd ranch tutorials on how you make an Alexa function. And that okay. gives you a sort of sense of like what an Alexa web service actually needs to do. And then you look okay. at the like simplest possible. I always just I always try to work by finding really simple bits of sample code that already run and adapting them. So you, you you figure out what the JSON looks like going in and out just to do like hello world on um, on Amazon uh, Alexa. That's the first step. Uh, and then you think like, well, okay, I'll write a Swift command line tool which takes a text string in through the standard input, just like if you piped it in, and then it parses that for JSON, finds all the values. And then it just prints into standard out JSON response. So in a sense, you've done what you need to do in Swift. Now all you got to do is find a way to get Swift running on Amazon's infrastructure so that the so that the request coming in gets fed to this command line app and then fed out. And then you just dig around around their specs, around what they say you can do with your with your JavaScript. And they say you can feed it, you know, you can, you can have um, binaries. Like they think you're going to use it for something logical, like like I have some binary that's doing some real work, like image magic or some kind of like you know complicated uh, uh, you know computational work. 
Um, but they've created the facility there so you can do it. So then the problem is, well, how do I create a Swift binary executable that's going to execute in the uh, execution environment that, that uh, Amazon provides? And they do say something about what versions of Linux they're using. And, you, and I think like, well, the Katura guys and gals and uh, IBM, they've done a lot of work already in making it fairly easy to run Swift stuff. They've like created their own version. They maintain a version of Swift that you can run on Linux and they have Docker containers for it. So first I just tried to, you know, use the Swift that they give me uh, and compile with that and just see if it works. So I don't know, it's just sort of banging the pieces together, um, figuring out what's not working, adding them as they go. It's, it's a sort of disorderly process. And where are you finding the time? I mean, you, you're the CTO, you have uh, a family. Uh, I mean, where are you finding this extra time? Yeah, to be honest, that part's a bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> so I, I feel like uh, preparing a talk and doing like work to support it takes about a week. Um, and, and I don't know how much of that time is actually working and how much of that time is like procrastinating and feeling increasingly anxious that I haven't prepared it yet. But that's, there's definitely a lot of that too. <laughs> right. Um, and when I was working as a contractor, I could just say, well, I'm going to take a week and do this. Even, And then you feel like a bit of a chump because you're not getting paid for a week and then you think was that really logical why am I doing this to myself but I really like giving talks and I like uh, I like doing these things so I ended up doing it anyway um, so yeah I think uh, you know commit to doing something and then you'll find the time to do it has been my experience all right so we have come to to the end but I have a couple of just like quick rapid fire um, questions so maybe just like you know say the kind of the first thing that comes uh, into your mind, okay? Yeah, sure. Um, what drives you? I think uh, curiosity, which is probably the good part of it. Bad part of it is, uh, I think, deep down inside, like part of me wants people to be a little impressed by what I'm doing. I, I know it's not very nice to admit it, but that's part of what what's going on. I think. No, that's that's great. I think. Um, well, first off, I like to impress myself. First off, like be. I'm proud of myself, right? Um, but I think every, you know, I think it's natural for people to want to be validated or um, have, you know, show off what they're doing and have other people relate to it. Ultimately, it's like being related to, right? And that's communication. Yeah. And uh, humans, that's what we all are all about. We're all about communicating and relating. I think that's totally normal. Okay. Um, what's your workstation like set up? A laptop, iMac? Uh, I have a MacBook Pro now. For the longest time, I was only on a MacBook Air, but as of a few a few weeks ago, I have a MacBook Pro, and I plug it into an external monitor, which is in portrait mode. Oh, nice. Yeah, got one of those too. Um, what kind of keyboard? You got like one of those ergonomic keyboards? Like No, I just use the keyboard on the MacBook Pro, so I have the MacBook Pro's uh, screen, and I have the MacBook Pro's keyboard. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. And the touch bar? Yep, yep. How's I got that? I like it. I like it. It's still a bit wonky. It's not 100% reliable at the moment, but um, I use it here and there. It's more cool. more positive than negative. I, I can live without the escape key. It's not so bad. Okay, right on. Git from the command line, uh, git from the GUI, or no git at all, or what's git? Uh, git from the command line, except I go into source tree when I need to sort of see a picture of the context of some complicated uh, rebase or some complicated situation. So... Nice. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, okay. This is like the boxer briefs question for software development, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, are you doing um, like anything? Like, are you guys doing like test driven development? Are you guys doing like functional? Are you doing reactive? Are you doing like MVVM or uh, at work? Are you guys like uh, for your iOS app? Are you guys doing anything interesting like that? Or, you know, anything? Uh, we have some unit tests and things that are testable, but that's not the UI. So that's really not that much unit test since there's a lot of UI. Uh, okay. I, I think we might be MVVM technically, but I, I, to be honest, I'm of the opinion that MVVM sounds just like a way of saying, be a bit tidy while you do your MVC. So I'm, I'm not sure that maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a curmudgeon, but that, that's always what so it's So your MVC is tidy. Okay, yeah, just kind of, uh, kind of keep it simple. Think about it first. Try to be organized. Nice. Uh, okay, your Twitter uh, profile picture. What's going on there? Um, I love it, by the way. There, w- there is a costume shop on Hate Street n- near me, and I was kind of wandering around in there, and they had large sunglasses, so I took a picture of myself. And then later That's I started great. working for an eyeglass company, and it seemed appropriate. Oh, totally. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think That's about great. it after, because it would be my profile picture from before then. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you've gotten this before, but uh, I mean, I, we, I don't know you that well, but I feel like you're a bit of a, uh, a comedian. Yeah, well, I actually did. Uh, I used to do long form improv for about 15 years, so performing regularly and uh, teaching and directing shows. So probably wow. more than a bit of a comedian. Yeah, although I haven't been haven't been doing much lately. I haven't done a show for a couple months. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, last two uh, questions. Where can people contact you online? Um, Twitter is probably the best place. I have a occasionally dysfunctional relationship to email where I just start avoiding it if it seems like there's too much. So, but but I, I tend not to be able to avoid Twitter. So that way, or you can send me an iMessage at my email address, and that'll usually work. Okay, uh, and what um, if people are interested in uh, the iOS developer position at Topology? Best way to you know make the first interaction? Please, just uh, yeah. So th- th- those emails I'll actually get because that email's not email box isn't flooded yet. Just send me an email at alexis at topologyeyewear.com. So if you uh, know your way I'll around iOS development and you like the idea of working in San Francisco on a high polish app that uses a lot of cool technology, please email me by all means. Awesome. Okay, last and uh, very, very last, I promise. Uh, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Hmm. I would say the best thing is to not so much worry about me- studying language features as such or memorizing this or that. Just sort of read what's happening in the uh, community to keep up to date. But give yourself the time to just slowly think clearly about something that you're trying to understand. And if it seems like it's confusing to you, then it's probably because it's actually confusing. It's, <laughs> it's not your fault. Like lots of things are actually confusingly explained everywhere. And the only reason other people aren't confused is they just spent the time to go through it or they are confused and they don't even realize it. They, they have actually an incoherent picture of the thing in their mind. So if something seems confusing or puzzling or inconsistent, you should just trust your gut and just think through it very slowly yourself. And that's, that's okay. That's how it's supposed to feel. 
Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, I think like the essence sort of there is is patience and uh, kind of not giving up. I I remember when I was studying, I would get discouraged and I wouldn't have the patience. You know, I couldn't wait to get to the next page of let's say the tutorial iOS Apprentice. Um, but uh, I really just needed to be more patient and really try to go back and learn and digest. Yeah, so I mean, um, I can't emphasize that enough. Like when I'm learning something new, I kind of read it. And then I don't get it. And then I read it again. And then I kind of repeat that like four or five times. And I try to like write a little bit or a little thing of it to see it working. And then I, then I keep doing that. And, and then eventually it, it makes sense. Um, but oftentimes, you know, you have the experience where you like, you read something and everyone around you and everything around you is kind of implying that you should be able to understand it. Like this should be clear. And I find often that implication is false. <laughs> like, uh, it took me a while to get to this point. But now, like, if I if I spend, like, 15 minutes trying to understand something, and it's not something that I know should be, like, profound and difficult, it should be, it's like some small thing, but it seems like hard. If, if I spend long enough trying to understand it and I don't understand it, there's this real strong impulse to think that, like, oh, I'm a dummy. What's wrong with me? And And now I just feel like, you know, it's probably just harder than it looks. So it's probably this, this is genuinely confusing. Just take it as a premise that you're not a dummy. And so if something's confusing, that's because it's confusingly explained and it actually is confusing. And that's just, you know, it's a steep hill and it's, it's like no one's fault. All right on. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, sharing your story. Uh, you know, working with uh, computers uh, at a very young age. Your dad was a computer enthusiast. You know, you had like one of the first handheld computers, like the big briefcase thing, which I think I saw on um, that one TV Osborne show. Osborne 64, yeah. Halt and Catch Fire, I think he like was, had something like that. Osborne 64. Yeah, and then kind of maybe giving up on computers and falling in love with physics and having this plan of becoming a physics, you know, professor or physicist, actually. And, uh, but, you know, kind of over time coming back to programming and, um, but still getting your PhD in, in the theoretical biology. Um, and then, but then like realizing that you, you know, you needed to, you know, maybe change your career to have the, the life that you wanted for you and your family and working in banking in London um, building these systems and then doing that, you know, being in London for like 10 years and then iPhone comes out and iOS is out and you're like, hmm, this is interesting and start doing iOS development. You move to San Francisco uh, and you're you know, working as a contractor doing iOS development and other, other things. And um, yeah, I mean, Swift comes out um, and then, you know, uh, you recently joined, uh, right? Was it la very late last year you joined Topology? Yeah, I took a the full-time, I took the full-time position just uh, around the time of the conference. Yeah, and so having, like, feeling that sort of jaundice, I guess, of, of like, he's, you know, being a part of a project and kind of getting it done um, and then starting another project, and it seemed like maybe you kind of wanted to be really involved with something and watch and build it and watch it grow, and you found something you believed in with uh, topology, and here you are now, and, you know, you're exploring, uh, as we said, uh, the lesser known subtleties of Swift. And thank you so much because it really, um, really does help. Um, you know, the, the, even just those two, I hear about those a lot. The paths talk and the value semantics uh, talk. I, I hear about those a lot. And so, 
keep doing your your thing keep going on those explorations uh and yeah thank you so much for doing that oh thanks for having me i hope i don't uh i feel a bit silly giving advice because i'm not sure i have um special wisdom to share but uh everyone's perspective you know you, you hear a lot of advice and some of it resonates and some of it doesn't other people's stories i find that can be really helpful it, well, in my case, at the very least, it certainly uh, it certainly did. So um, I, I'm sure you're just uh, being a humble guy. I know you, you really did help. So thank you so much. And yeah, look forward to like hearing more of the explorations and looking forward to seeing what you are doing with like the machine learning in Swift. That's going to be really exciting. And yeah, so just keep it up and uh, I'll talk with you later. All right. Thanks. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Swift Coders.